Hi, this is Ellen Gear, and you're listening to TV Confidential. Why were you rubbing your nose like that? Well, if it's any of your business, I was rubbing it because it bothers me a little. Oh, I'm sorry. Is it, is it because of your eyeglasses? Ed Robertson with a reminder that Louise Sorrell will join us at the top of the hour. We hope you join us for that. In the meantime, we will close out our first hour by playing part two of a conversation that began last week with Phil Rosenzweig. Phil Rosenzweig, professor of organizational behavior at the MID Business School and the author of Reginald Rose and the Journey of Twelve Angry Men, the first biography of Reginald Rose. Reginald Rose, one of the first great voices of television, Phil's book also provides the backstory of Rose's magnum opus, Twelve Angry Men. Reginald Rose and the Journey of Twelve Angry Men, available Fordham University Press as well as Amazon.com. Com. Now, it was originally written for television. Uh, his original draft was probably about 40 minutes too long, so he had to compress that. But when he adapted it for the big screen, he not only worked back some of that material, but uh, one of the most iconic moments of the motion picture was something he did not come up with until almost the day before it was shot, the final scene. Yes, you're referring there to, to the ending. There's that incredible moment where Juror 3, played by Lee J. Cobb, uh, who's the last holdout, and nobody knows why is this person holding out, holding out, what's the reason why? And at the very end, he motions to his wallet and dislodges a photograph of his son, sees his son, and tears it up, and he realizes... He he finally realizes, and the others realize as well, that the anger that he has towards the defendant is actually displaced anger that he feels towards his son. It's a brilliant, brilliant uh, example of transference. Rose had a different ending for the television play. He had a slightly better but still not great ending for the first movie draft. And this, this ending that I just mentioned and that everybody knows, it really only came about... Uh, in the shooting script. And a question I have, you know, anybody who does research, there's things you discover and there's things that you never discover. And the thing that I never discovered and would love to know is at what point did someone come up with that idea and was it Rose who came up with it or did it actually come out of the rehearsals that they did in the two weeks before the filming? I don't know the answer to that. It's possible that Rose came up with it. It's also possible that it was something that came out of the rehearsals that Lamette did with the actors and that some, something there triggered it. And I don't know the answer to that. But between the second draft, which would have been in the spring of 1956, and the shooting script right before they filmed it in June, it changed. And I don't really know where that came from. It could have been either one. Reginald Rose and the Journey of Twelve Angry Men, available wherever books are sold, Fordham University Press, as well as Amazon.com. We talked about how Twelve Angry Men is a study, is, is a character study. You've used it. Others have used it as an example to teach human behavior. One of the things that makes the movie great and one of the things that makes the play great is that it's 12 characters and some we get to know better than others. Obviously, it follows Juror 8, you know, the Henry Fonda character. He, he's the spine of the movie. But all of the jurors have a chance to express their character. So they're not just 12 people sitting around the table. They're 12 people that we get to know a little bit. And part of that has to do with the brilliance of 
rose as a dramatist, but in the case of the movie, a lot of it has to do with the casting and the cast. We we should touch a little bit on the cast itself, besides Lee J. Cobb and Henry Fonda, actors who were not only established players in TV at the time, but a- actors who would become well-known in the decades after the movie. That's right. You had Lee J. Cobb as juror number three. You had Jack Warden, who plays uh, juror number seven. Jack Klugman, uh, not very well-known at the time, but went on to a great career. Marty Balson as well. And Ed Begley played juror 10, one of the things that's not well known is that he wasn't supposed to play that role. It was supposed to be uh, Edward Arnold, who played it on the television movie, a, a, a big, strong character that Frank Capra used to like as a as a, a bad guy. He would have made a great Juror 10, but he died suddenly about uh, six weeks before filming began, and they reached out to Ed Begley, who Lamette knew. Begley was starring in Inherit the Wind on Broadway, and he thought that was the culmination of his career. Every night after they they did a rap on 12 Angry Men, he'd walk over and he'd be on Broadway. And uh, you mentioned going to the uh, the, the Academy uh, uh, Library in Beverly Hills there. I, they have Ed Begley's scrapbook. And one of the things that I found in there is a fascinating quote. He said, you know, people underestimated me. Well, that's my word. People didn't appreciate me as an actor until 12 Angry Men. They just thought I was the person that I played until 12 Angry Men. Because anybody who knew Ed Begley knew he was not this this uh, mean-spirited bigot, but that movie is what we remember him for. So he probably played uh, the lead in Inherit the Wind, what, seven, eight hundred times, but nobody knows that anymore. It's not been captured on film. He didn't, he was not in the movie version. They went to other actors for that. We remember him for what had been this fairly small role. So it really was a fabulous ensemble cast. I didn't mention E.G. Marshall. He, of course, went on to The Defenders. Mm-hmm. He plays Juror 4. So Klugman, Martin Balsam, E.G. Marshall, Jack Warden, those four in particular worked a lot with Rose over the years, and almost all of the cast Lumet picked because Lumet had known them uh, from his television work on either Danger or You Are There. The few exceptions, uh, Joseph Sweeney, who plays the old man, and George Voskovic, they had been on the original Studio One version and were kept on for the movie. And then two newcomers, uh, Robert Weber, who plays Juror 12, and John Fiedler plays Juror Number 2. John Fiedler is one of my favorite characters in the movie, not just because I remember him from all the other movies and TV shows that he subsequently did, but if I remember correctly, it's either his character or E.G. Marshall's character. They have it's, There's a pivotal scene. It's, it's, it's one of the points where there's another pivot in the vote, and it has to do with wearing your glasses and the, right. the, the effect the bridge can have on one's nose. And, and I don't, and I, I know, I know Fiedler, I don't remember whether it was Fiedler's character wore, or wore glasses or, or Marshall's, but it's an, another example of how something like that helps to helps bring out an aspect of the character. And that's what makes all those characters great. Yes, and, and interestingly, Ed, in Rose's first outline, the person who comes up with all the insights is Juror 8. And as Rose reworked the script, he gave more and more of those insights to other people. And you realize that the power of Juror 8 is in creating an environment where ordinary people have the courage to point out things that they observed. So Juror 2 talks about the angle of the knife, and the old man, Juror 9, 
he has his insights and jurors six and so forth. So one of the things from a group dynamic standpoint is that at the very beginning, who talks a lot? Well, it's the people who are seemingly confident, the, the loud people, juror 10, juror 3, juror 7, the, the loudmouth salesman. And who doesn't speak at the beginning? The meek juror 2, the old man juror 9, the immigrant juror 11. But over time, thanks to what Fonda's able to do to give make people feel empowered in a safe environment, the loudmouths start talking less, and the meek people, the marginalized people, begin to contribute more. It's an extraordinary thing that uh, Rose developed there. Reginald Rose and the journey of 12 Angry Men, available wherever books are sold, Fordham University Press, as well as Amazon.com. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. We've touched briefly on the Defenders. We're going to have Phil back later on in the year. We'll talk a lot more expansively about the Defenders uh, because that that merits a conversation of itself. But uh, two more questions for now. 12 Angry Men has been the basis of many adaptations, some straightforward, some as parodies. Do you have a favorite adaptation of a 12 angry men well the, the one that just blew me away was a few years ago uh inside amy schumer did a, a dead ringer of, of, of a knockoff uh right down to the cinematography the angles what the what the characters were wearing but of course she addressed something very very different the the question here was is Amy Schumer hot enough to be on television? <laughs> and all these men talking about you know talking as as men may talk amongst themselves yeah. uh, about uh, uh, women's bodies. It's a it's a brilliant brilliant uh, example of that. And and you know you, you you mentioned parodies. There are a lot of parodies, and I had to go back and understand what a parody is. A parody is it's not mockery. No, you it's you have to you have to of, you have to understand the source material in order to exaggerate certain elements of it. Exactly, you you ex- exaggerate it for comedic effect, but you're not making fun of it. Yeah. I think everybody who has found a way to exaggerate for comedic effect actually has a very deep, almost reverent appreciation of the original source material. But because it is so well known, so I went back and I watched the Dick Van Dyke show episode where you know rob is on a jury i watched the uh all in the family when edith bunker is on the jury and of course she's the simple-minded but actually very wise person who holds out for good reason uh so there's there's been a lot of examples and those are a few i would i would take the amy schumer but i'd toss in um uh, Edith from All in the Family as well. I, I would add the Odd Couple did their own version of Twelve of Twelve Angry Men, I think, in the first season. And and the fun thing about that was, you know, of course, Jack Klugman was part of the cast of, of, of yeah. the movie. And uh, about ten years ago, I saw an adaptation of Twelve Angry Men performed by the Pasadena Playhouse. And yes. it was an all African American cast. And lear- factoring in what I've come to learn about Reginald Rose through Reginald Rose and the journey of Twelve Angry Men, I would like to think Rose would be would have been particularly pleased with that adaptation. So there are ways to take the basic ideas and cast it in ways that brings into sharper relief some of the differences. Uh, well, a curious thing, uh, I, I think it's really important to point out. As he wrote it, it's an all-white jury. It, 
because it's powerful because when they first look around the room and look at one another, it's like, oh, well, we're all white men. We're all going to see it the same way. And therefore, when the rifts come about based on the age, class, education, temperament, whatever it may be, they're very powerful because there's an there's a superficial homogeneity of the group. But that's not the only way you can cast it. And Pasadena and elsewhere have done things a bit differently, uh, casting uh, not 12 white men. Uh, William Friedkin did a version on Showtime in 1997 where he introduced some black, some Hispanic characters. It brings a different dynamic. Reginald Rose and the Journey of 12 Angry Men, available wherever books are sold through Fordham University Press as well as Amazon.com. Phil Rosen's why we will have you back on very, very soon on TV Confidential. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Ed. Louise Sorrell will join us when we come back for hour number two of TV Confidential. Stay with us. Now available at retail for the very first time from our friends at Time Life, Dolly, the ultimate collection. Dolly, the ultimate collection, a dazzling and delightful six-DVD collection highlighting many of the greatest moments from the incredible career of Dolly Parton, the undisputed Queen of Country Music. Dolly, the Ultimate Collection, available nationally in Walmart stores and select retailers beginning Tuesday, September 21st from our friends at Time Life. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at tvconfidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.